Judas kisses Jesus in bad faith. So that's a symbol of greeting, more than a handshake, but a symbol of greeting. But it's done in bad faith, which makes a betrayal seem all the more awful. And Jesus predicted his betrayal at a meal, which symbolizes and brings about communion and relationship. So the point is that Matthew is trying to get us to feel Jesus's betrayal in stark and emotional terms. Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast. I'm here with Aaron and Matthew, as always. Hey, Jay. Great to be here, as always. Today, we're going to knock out Exodus and Matthew. Wow, that's incredible. We've gotten through all of Genesis, now all of Exodus, and all of Matthew. That's a big deal. Matthew is a big deal. And I would like to point out that we're doing this on week seven of the Bible reading plan. Which I've been getting some feedback, and I've heard that that's kind of confusing, which week. And we should be also saying which day of the plan it goes through. So I might be able to put that in the notes. Oh, well, if you guys talk about something for a minute, I'll go grab it. I have it on my phone. Oh, you do? Yeah. Beat you. Let's hear it. Oh, Aaron's sprinting back over here with paper. So I went through all the work of counting out every day and marking the number of the week on it. So this is day 43, which I guess now that I'm saying it, we could just look at the references as well. But it's day 43 through day 49, but we're rocking day 50 as well. So if you've been reading with this plan and you've done it every day for the 43 days, you essentially have gone three days longer than Jesus was tempted in the wilderness And you've gone three days longer than Moses' fast before the face of the Lord that we read about in Exodus. And three days longer than it rained. Yep, except probably your reading was like 20 minutes out of that day instead of 24 hours for each of those days. Wow, Aaron, that's a fun fact. Thank you. It seems worth mentioning. I thought there was another 40-day thing. Well, if you're thinking of the fact that we're starting 43, you could take Jesus in the wilderness plus Jonah in the belly of the whale, and you get 43. Bible math. Math. You. Well, getting back to Exodus, last week we talked about the laws and altars and slaves and restitution, social justice, tabernacle construction, tabernacle furniture, and this week we're going to talk about more tabernacle furniture. But I have a question before we start. Why is there so much detail here? Uh, Yeah, Um, the reason why uh, so much detail is given is for people nowadays who want to try to recreate the scene. They have much more information uh, with which to do that. So maybe Ken Ham can have a tabernacle encounter alongside the Ark encounter. Oh, I don't know if he's thought of that, but you could try to like sell the idea to him. That'd be cool. People would go see it. Well, I think I briefly commented that doing things like that is fruitless and not the point of the text. Fruitless how? People people go People pay money, so I guess you're <laughs> you're making bank off of people who want to see what it looks like. Well, That's yeah. nice. And it's Biblically themed, maybe people think about biblical things that ordinarily wouldn't. Well, I think they're also building a Tower of Babel, which seems problematic. Is that correct? I think so. I don't know. I couldn't tell if that was a Babylon B thing or if it was for real. But But the tabernacle was real. But I assume they're they're doing the Tower of Babel for fun, not to try to reach heaven like the people in Genesis. You don't think they were having fun? Well, they... They probably were. They're like, this is great, stacking all this stuff. We're going to get to God, but different fun. Okay. This was a fun digression. Yeah. Yeah. But anyways, yeah, that's why all that detail's in there uh, is for people in our time. If you want to recreate it, um, Aaron's got a pretty nice-looking office now. Some, uh, you know, he's got some decor. I think I could see you branching off into some of these, like, tabernacle-themed items. 
get some sheep hair, put it up around. Oh yeah, bales. that would be great. Yep. Uh-huh. Increasing precious metals as we get to the inner sanctum of the, Ooh. Yeah. Of your office. Absolutely. Uh, your someday your entire office could just be gold plated everything. That would be, be sweet. sweet. That that's a good use of church money. You know how people write like they they'll take the Bible and market it as like the kids whatever Bible or the men's Bible. I could see someone taking this section for like the Instagram interior designer Bible and doing something really creative with it. I like that. There we go. I think I would answer the question pretty similarly, except not for recreating it, but it's a record of of the instructions because it's it's what was given to Moses. And it, there's a lot of material there. I would forget it. So you could imagine that whoever is receiving this is writing it down. And um, Did Moses have a stenographer or something like that? Well, he had someone who spoke on his behalf. So maybe somebody wrote things down on his behalf as well. You never know. What's um, he even doing? I know. He's, he's just a figurehead. Well, anyway, I, I would more seriously say that probably... The point is to emphasize the importance of the tabernacle, and it kind of leads up to the conclusion of the book where God finally dwells with his people in a more ongoing and lasting way. So the detail might seem boring to us, but maybe instead it's actually intended to create some level of suspense, and um, it positions us to receive the glory of the Lord. Well, there's definitely people who put forth a lot of connections between these, at least the tabernacle, with uh, aspects of Jesus and um, him dwelling with us. Yeah. So, well, that's why. Okay. Yeah. I I saw your facial expression here. Well, obviously. Yeah. Well, I thought you were going to say with the garden, because there is garden imagery in these depictions. And so it kind of, especially for people like G.K. Beale, will kind of shore up his argument that the garden was intended to be like a temple or a tabernacle where God's presence dwells. So you'll notice as you read these descriptions, there's lots of wood, there are tree-like objects, these sorts of things. But Well, let me give you an example of what, okay. what I was referring to. So there's this verse in Psalm 132, 9, that says, may your priests be clothed in righteousness. So this isn't yep. talking about the tabernacle, but in relation to this passage here. And so people would make the connection that that points toward ultimate high priest Jesus who Mm -hmm. is righteous and that is the only way we could stand before God in his presence through Jesus. What was that text? Psalm 132 9. Can we look at it together? Yeah we can look at it together. This seems like a nice rabbit trail. Yep that's what this episode is actually. (laughs) Well when you're on week seven. That's right. Day 43. When we're repeating some of these I do see the dwelling place of the Lord in this passage. Yeah. Wait, what's the point they're trying to make? Just that there are things in these yep. laws and regulations that point towards Jesus. Okay. And so they make these connections. Yeah. I didn't know if you were super on board with that or... I think it depends. I think some connections are really good, but some I'm not so sure about. Because I think what people sometimes are trying to do is they're grabbing onto one metaphor for understanding the atonement. So it's a transaction of righteousness. And we need Jesus's righteousness on us so that we can safely go as priests of God before the Father or something. Or So it's just like the veil um, being torn. And now instead of accessing yeah. God through there, we are accessing God through Jesus's torn flesh. Yeah, and maybe I think that's way too far, probably. But but I think sometimes we can make that the overriding image of the atonement when there are other atonement images as well. But we latch onto one, and then we filter everything we read in the Bible through that one thing, which I don't think is helpful. I mean, I think it is helpful to a certain extent, but then problematically, when we only talk about one image— and connect everything else in the Bible to that one image. Now we've made that one thing central to our biblical theology. And then when someone talks about a different image of the atonement that's helpful or right, or a different important theme in the Bible, then it's sort of like, ah, no, you're outside of the camp because you're not grabbing onto the same things we are. So that's why I'd say it's problematic. 
and maybe it would blind us to other important things in, in a text. Aaron, uh, when you were reading about the garments, did you take a little bit of extra enjoyment since they were all said to be worn by you? By the the brother of Moses, Aaron. By Aaron. Yeah. Yeah. The pomegranates could, and bells. Yeah, I could see you, do you in have this. A, do you have a garment like that, Aaron? I do. And actually, uh, when I'm working around the office, I, I wear that, you know, as I Josh can hear you intercede coming. before you guys. And yeah. Just kidding. I don't I don't wear any of that. I, I just wear regular human um, North American clothes. <laughs> okay. I could see you in this turban, though. I used to roll up the cuffs on my pant legs where I could have nestled some bells for walking around, but I don't do that anymore. Did we talk about the the Urim and the Thumnim? <laughs> I, that's as close as I'm getting with that. Did we talk about that last time? I can't remember. I, I don't think so. Do you want to talk about that? I'm, I've always been curious. This might be another one of those. It's debated, but yeah, I'd it, like to bring it up because I'm curious about what yeah, the, the function Urim of this was for. and Thumim in the breast piece for decisions. I I don't know what that is. I know there's a ton written about it, and I have had zero interest in it ever. That doesn't mean it's not interesting. I just don't care. And maybe I need to care more. Maybe that's what I'll learn from our time together today. But I guess off the cuff, I would say either it's probably like whatever pieces they use to cast lots. Um, you know, Israelites do that at times. They cast lots. And if this is for decisions, you know, maybe maybe that's what it's referencing. Maybe it's a like instrument that carries fire or something. I don't know. What What would you say, AJ? You seem to care about this more than I do. I think it must have something to do with making decisions, right? And is that because it says four decisions? Yep. Okay. That's where I'm getting that from. (laughs) Me too. We're on the same page. Well, yeah. I mean, that's what I was, you know, starting my (laughs) argument with is this is what I know. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter how it worked, right? It's just the fact that it did work and that Mm -hmm. you know Aaron's job was to to use it. So. Yeah, and who knows? I I think. Matthew, we're in 2830, but yeah, I mean, he'll, he'll continually carry the means of decisions for Israelites over his heart before the Lord. It seems pretty clear that we know its function, what they were or looked like or how it worked. I don't know. Interesting. But if someone finds out, we can start using that next time we make a big decision as a church, and I'm happy to wear them over my heart. I'm on board. What do you think about uh, Israel's construction of the tabernacle and its relation to the seven days of creation? Mm. Any thoughts about that? The kind of like a microcosm of the cosmic temple. That's a little bit of what I was alluding to earlier with the connection to the garden, because the garden is often talked about as a cosmic temple or a microcosm of the cosmic temple, and then that's carried on in, in the tabernacle and then the temple. I think there are good arguments for it. I'm not familiar enough with them to be able to say, uh, but it makes sense, a place for God to rest in. So in the ancient Near East, um, the, when it, when the gods would create the earth, they were creating a place for their rest or something like that. And maybe we see that in the creation account where the garden is seen as the, the God's resting place. And then here, obviously at the end of the book, God's glory fills the tabernacle, Right. Um, so it seems to be a resting place there. Now, when we talked about the, did we talk about the uh, Ark of the Covenant yet? Did I talk about my John connection there? No, I don't think so. Can I do that? We'll allow it. Thank you for that judgment. Did you pull out the Urim and Thummim to make that one? Where Where is the Ark of the Covenant in here? Exodus. Okay, that's that's not helpful. I mean, it's it's more helpful than. Bible. Nothing. That's earlier. Oh, 25, 10. Oh, so we already talked about this. Where well, where, we went over it, where but, God's yeah. glory would rest between the cherubim, you know, where there are the angels on either side and God's glory is resting in the middle, right? Why do we even have the cher- Like, why do we have these gold, like, representations? Well, it's like, Why couldn't God just chill in there? Well, because it looks sweet. So we have this. So then in... The way John describes the empty tomb, 
with two angels, one on either side. It's like the the Ark of the Covenant there, except God's glory has now, you know, risen in, in the resurrection. I really like that. Do we have a good idea of what the cherubim look like? Well, most of the descriptions are pretty wonky. Multiple wings, these sorts of things. It's hard to know if they're literal descriptions or, you know, whatever. I, I have no good answer other than probably not a baby with a harp or an arrow, bow and arrow. That's probably not it. You're thinking of Cupid. That's it. Yeah. Because I was wondering if uh, cherubim, you think that's a good tattoo idea? Get some sweet cherubim? Uh, I probably wouldn't wouldn't recommend it. Would that be like sacrilegious or something? No. Oh. I just I just don't know why you would want that. So they in, might look cool. In chapter thirty two, we've been talking about Aaron's clothing. So I have a question about Aaron making this golden calf. Can can we talk about what, what was he thinking? Why why did he let the people sway him into making this golden calf? Even you know, Moses comes down and says, Aaron, what were you doing? He's like, I, I don't know. I just, they gave me this gold and this calf popped out. Do you Come think on, you I should trust his explanation to Moses? Absolutely not. I want to talk about it. I mean, it was an interesting story. That's for sure. Because they're basically like, what? Moses has been gone too long. That guy's not coming back. We need something to worship. It what reminded me. He just ran off with God. <laughs> and they weren't coming back? I don't know. One thing that it did remind me of was, you know, he blames it on the people. And it, I was reminded of the way Eve blames the serpent when God comes in and mm-hmm. you know, Adam blames Eve. And that, yeah. that popped into my mind. Yeah, True. absolutely. I think I would want to start by pointing out that probably all of the gold that was used to make this calf was part of the plunder that Israel took out from the from Egypt. Probably most of it. Um, right? and, and I would say that's true of all of these ornate things that are going to decorate the tabernacle. All of these things are coming from the wealth that they carried out of Egypt. So even that, God provided for them. Uh, so that places everything in a pretty stark contrast. And I think there's a good lesson there that we we take God's good gifts and we can probably use them for our own idolatrous purposes without even remembering that they're from God in the first place and intended for his glory. So it, it is interesting to me that we just hear all of this description of um, tent of meeting, the incense, the atonement money, all of these sorts of things. And the, the first thing they do is instead of constructing this, they construct a golden calf. Now, one thing that's not clear to me because I have not studied Exodus in depth, I'm ashamed to say, is I don't know the chronology of these things. It, the chronology is really hard to follow here. When did this golden calf incident take place? Um, regardless of that, you have just heard Aaron described as someone who's going to wear these this ornate outfit as he mediates before the Lord, probably, right, for the people. And now he is like a, a false priest, in a sense. He has them bring all of their gold. You know, he has this plan in mind. And then he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made it into an image of a calf. So this didn't happen automatically, right? This I don't know how long it takes to melt down gold and fashion a calf out of it. I don't know if you guys have any experience with that, but I haven't done it, in a it while. seems like this wasn't a one-day process, right? I don't know. Anyway, it took some work. And then verse 4, here's something that's confusing. And I don't have the Hebrew text before me, but it says, then they said, who is the they referring to? You know, is that referring to Israel? Is that referring to Aaron and his sister? You know what I mean? It's very confusing to me. More than that, when the people talk to Aaron in verse 1, they refer to Moses as the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt. And now whoever they is said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. More than that, there's the confusion on how to translate the phrase, these are your gods. You know, it can be translated, this is your God, or um, this 
Uh, yeah, so I, Elohim is plural, right? So it's hard to know. Are they saying that this is representative of Yahweh or there are other gods who brought you up out of Egypt? It's just so complicated. I don't know. Because then, verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it and made an announcement, there will be a festival to Yahweh tomorrow. You know what I mean? This is just a really convoluted scene. So I don't know who made the calf. It seems like Aaron did. But then someone else maybe made a pronouncement about it. And then he makes a pronouncement about a festival to Yahweh to where maybe he's equating the calf to the Lord's presence among them. Whatever it is, it's bad. Yeah, God's not happy. I I hope someday I can preach through Exodus because I would like to know what is actually happening here. And it's pretty obscure to me. I like the punishment uh, that Moses does. Burns it up, grinds it up, throws it in the powder into water, and he forces him to drink it. Yeah, it's kind of like, hey, you really wanted to worship this and be you know, involved with this idol. Here you go. Mm-hmm. Now you're going to ingest it and really be connected to it. Yeah, and you'll see the, the end product, <laughs> which is not great. Maybe that's a good, very graphic description of our idolatry. And then further punishment, where the Levites had to walk through the camp and start stabbing their brothers and neighbors and oh, yeah. friends. Yeah. Is, is I know you said you liked the punishment, Matthew, but this whole scene is really tough. Well, I was mostly talking about making them drink it. Okay. But um, Yeah. Yeah, the, the slaughtering, I'm not like trying to cheer that on. But. Yep. Well, I think what we see here is a kind of forecasting of what God will call Israel to do to the nations who worship false gods in the promised land. He's going to call them to go in and to uh, conquer that land, not just so that Israel can have a place to live, but as an act of judgment against idolaters. And Israel is the first one to taste of this, really. Well, I guess the Amalekites were. We read about that last week, but... Soon after that, you see Israelites are on equal footing with the Amalekites. On maybe a more positive note, in Exodus 33, 11, we see that God speaks to Moses as a man would to his friend. And I, th- I think that's amazing, that mm-hmm. statement. I was just blown away by that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, these, this idea of someone being a friend of God. We I think Abraham is called a friend of God. Moses, we see... In this way, but then really all of Israel, where God is inviting them to Himself, I think I think that's remarkable. Despite the fact that they commit idolatry as soon as they have an opportunity to, they're not patient. All of these things, um, but the book ends in a really positive way, doesn't it? Because over and over in chapters 36 through 39, we read the phrase of well, verse 30, chapter 36, verse five. The, the people brought more than what was needed for the construction of the sanctuary, right? So what a change. They, they brought, you know, all that they needed to make a golden calf, and now they're bringing more than what was needed for the building of the tabernacle. And there, I think that's another reminder, uh, in a positive way this time, of everything that we have belongs to the Lord. Whatever they gave was stuff that they left Egypt with because God gave them favor in the Egyptians' eyes on their way out. But they gave more than what was needed. And then over and over again, um, especially in chapter 39, you keep reading the phrase, just as the Lord commanded. People did just as the Lord commanded. And that's how you want your story to end, right? That's how we want the book of Exodus to end, is that they did just as the Lord commanded. Then I'd point out that in chapter 39, verse 43, Moses inspected all the work that they had accomplished. They had done just as the Lord commanded. And there's, there's this phrase, then Moses blessed them, which I think compares really starkly to Exodus 16, 20, where people didn't do as the Lord commanded. They gathered more manna than they were supposed to. So it bred worms and stank. And then we have the line, therefore Moses was angry with them. So so when they disobeyed the Lord, Moses is angry with them. They, they receive judgment, as we just talked about. But when they obey the Lord, then Moses blesses them. They receive the blessing of the Lord. Wasn't there some dinner with like 70 people? Like <laughs> 70 people and God? Where was that at? Yeah, that, that was at the, 
the making of the covenant where the elders of Israel went up before the Lord. I think um, Exodus 24 or 25. Oh, so that was last week. Again, I I am... I just am realizing how unfamiliar I am with Exodus as we've been walking through this. There, oh, yeah. there are portions that I feel like I know pretty well, but there's a lot that I just don't know. Oh, here it is. Twenty, yeah, twenty-four. Yep. Oh. Nine. Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and those are the guys that die, right? Nadab and Abihu. Yeah. Yeah, and seventy of Israel's elders, and they saw the God of Israel beneath his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli as clear as the sky itself. God did not harm the Israelite nobles. They saw him, and they ate and drank. Yeah, what does that mean? I thought you couldn't see God. Well, God can reveal himself, and apparently they saw him in a way where he didn't harm them. And maybe it's, you know, that shocking. Is and Maybe that's why they say uh, God did not harm them. They saw him, they ate and drank. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, what that's form cool. did he take? I don't know. I mean, but it seems like a pretty remarkable sight. And to think, these are the individuals who will go on to participate in worshiping this golden calf, right? Yeah, that's pretty wild. Yeah. Dinner with... Because Aaron was there, and then 70 of these elders. But I think we we all probably react to that like you are right now, and like we all naturally do, but then when we slow down and think about ourselves, we're like, oh yeah, there have been moments where I have just, I have felt so close to God or I've seen him so clearly, you know, metaphorically. Um, but then we we don't live by faith and and then we act like these guys, right? right. Um, and I think this is where we think of Jesus's words, a pure in heart shall see God. And, and these individuals are drawing near to God, but then when they follow their own desires and whatever else, they, they don't see him. I think a good instruction for us is what Moses says in thirty three eighteen. You know, you think he's probably the guy on, that exists right now that it's been the closest to God, and he just has a request granted, you know, that God will go with them and not destroy the people. And then he goes further and asks God to see his glory. Mm-hmm. And then um, he re- equates that with God's goodness. And I think that's instructive for us to to see God's glory and to want to experience him in, in his presence. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. And I think, you know, that's in chapter 33 here, you know, into 34. And that's where the Lord shows him the glory. At 34, King James, uh, maybe this is not worth mentioning, but I think in 33, uh, 22... Oh, 23. I think it in KJV, it's something like, I'll take my my hand away and you'll see my hinder parts. I just thought that was so funny growing up. That's good. And I haven't, I mean, I could pull off the KJV, pull the KJV up and look at it, but it, that's not worth mentioning. I think what is worth mentioning is that 34.5, the Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And then the Lord does what he says and this is a proclamation, the revealing of, of God's glory. The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. And whatever you take away from that, you take away that God is complicated. <laughs> How, how he can be both gracious and compassionate, abounding in faithful love and truth, but also not leaving the guilty unpunished. Um, but, but sometimes he offers mercy, right? So, so God is not someone to be trifled with. And you shouldn't say, well, because God is gracious, I can do whatever the heck I want. Um, but you also shouldn't be so absorbed in your guilt that you don't come to the Lord and ask for forgiveness because that's what Moses immediately does afterwards, right? He kneels down. He worships, and then he says, forgive our iniquity and our sin and accept us as your own possession. Yeah, I think we're going to be coming back to these verses in the future because I I know these verses are quoted a lot in the Bible. Yeah, and interestingly, they usually stop after the positive things. In the Psalms, most places, it stops after forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. What does the generation thing mean? Is it just that... If you if you don't repent somebody's sin, it just kind of 
grows and carries on and is passed down through generations, at least the, the bad habits and the bad views of not turning to God? Yeah, that, that might be one way of taking it. I think probably I would look at two things. One would be where someone sins and their whole family is punished for it. So um, the guy who buried stuff under his tent, who was that guy? Achan. Uh, his his whole family was stoned, right? So they they were punished beyond just that generation. And then I would also look to the commands, especially in Deuteronomy, where parents are instructed to teach the ways of the Lord to their children. And when parents fail to do that, then their children fail to walk in the way of the Lord. And so then really they, they receive the, the consequences of that. But some people talk about you know, inherited sin or genetic sin or something like that. I, I don't know that I would probably lean into that. Some people will say, well, I have this sin issue because my dad had this sin issue or something. And, and it's probably more complicated than that. Probably there are some DNA things like um, that that are part of it. But I don't know you that you can say, I am stuck with being a bitter person because my dad was a bitter person. Yeah, that seems... I, I don't think that's what this is communicating. Right. I think that's what you're asking. No, um, maybe, I, maybe I was misunderstanding you. Oh, maybe you misunderstood me. Because what you just said, I agree with that. I don't think that that would be the case. Just more so like if you have whatever a father or parents that aren't following God, like they're not going to do anything to teach you or raise you to love God. So it's just going to like perpetuate... Uh, you know, a sinful life apart from yeah, God. Absolutely. Okay. That, that's kind of the way I took it. Yeah. Right on. Because I thought there was somewhere, I don't remember where it was, but it was like, you know, you're doomed for generations unless you repent and then, you know, I'll forgive you. Mm-hmm. But like, it's like, if, but if you don't turn and repent, it's like, yeah, the consequences of, of that sin impacts the next generation. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and the only way to stop it is to turn in and repent. Otherwise, it's just going to keep yeah. snowballing down the generations. Yep, and I think we'll see that over and over again. You see that in particular when you read texts regarding the Davidic covenant where uh, David and Solomon and his sons were all supposed to walk in the ways of the Lord or else the family line would be cut off, right? So I think, especially as we read the Old Testament, we see this. Give me your highlight and low light from Exodus, guys. Well, the low light would be the detail of making the the rings and the rods for the tabernacle. I I really had to had to go fast through that. No way. That's surprising to me yeah, to hear that from you because I think of you as a guy who kind of likes the like who likes nice things. Who who likes kind of things that look good, and I thought maybe you would enjoy those descriptions. That's true. I should have busted out the study Bible and looked at the pictures, and yeah. maybe I would have connected with the text a little bit more. Well, that's okay. They're tough. Yeah, I think I think the high for me was just thinking about how, you know, God brought the Israelites out of Egypt so that He could dwell with them, and you know, it's the same way with me. You know, He brought me out of sin. And mm-hmm. then now he dwells with me. And I think just, just thinking about that big picture idea was encouraging. Matthew? Uh, low light for me probably would be the same, actually. Reading about all the, yeah, whatever the detail was with all that interior stuff, that was a little bit uh, slow getting through. Highlight, I don't know how to consolidate it or condense it, but just the the themes of people screw up really bad and then but you know they can be forgiven if they repent mm-hmm. and just kind of seeing that i don't know all the very human moments that the israelites have and that moses himself has yep i don't know you can you can relate to it and it's encouraging so. yeah absolutely yeah i think the low light for me or frustrating piece was Realizing there's there's so much that I don't know, and over and over again having to say, I don't know what I I don't even know what the options are to think about this, and I don't have time to look any of it up because we're just going through it so fast. So that was frustrating, but I think highlight is that that Exodus narrative. I think that's like the primary framework that I read the Bible through is seeing echoes of the Exodus over and over again, 
in the rest of the Bible, in my own life, I think is the, where the church is, like freedom from bondage, not in the promised land yet, but on the way with God's presence, right? So that's kind of like the controlling narrative for me when I read the rest of the Bible. So I really enjoyed going through that. All right, let's move on to Matthew. Well, I believe that I'm supposed to walk us through these chapters, and we start in Matthew 25, halfway through. Is that correct? That's correct. There's some, this is holy ground, some sacred scripture here that maybe the climax of the book and the in the Bible. So Yeah. Now, is there through. non-sacred scripture? Oh, uh, that's a good point. Esther. <laughs> Actually. Well, some people would say, um, that's funny. <clears throat> okay. Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. This is, for me, this section 31 through 46, I think the most clear and helpful statement of the end times in the entire Bible, at least for me, other than Paul's statements in 1 Corinthians 15, some of them. Some of those are really complicated, but here, this, this is what, if someone asked me what I think about the end times— I want to say the Son of Man will come in glory and he'll sit on his glorious throne. That, that's the summary of the end times here. And of course, the picture of Jesus as the king, I think, connects to so much of the royal imagery that's spread throughout Matthew and connects to the gospel of the kingdom. So it's no surprise that Jesus ends his description of his return describing himself as the king who separates between the righteous and the unrighteous. This is exactly what they're looking for. He, of course, does it in somewhat metaphorical or parabolic terms. And I think we just have to honestly recognize that it's texts like these that makes people question how literal Jesus's descriptions of things like heaven and hell are, because he brings in things that are both metaphorical and literal at times, and it's hard to chase these things out, to sort them out. And so that's why I would say to someone struggling with these things, regardless of how you're working to articulate it, you shouldn't abandon the way that Jesus articulates it, and you should be okay when it's not as clear to you as you'd like it to be. Whether we're talking about the literal nature of what happens after death or the exact timeline where you're trying to figure out what does the end of, of you know, life in this world look like before Jesus' return. I think we have to be okay with some level of ambiguity, and we find that here. Anything you guys want to say about this sheep and the goats section? Yeah, one thing um, that I found encouraging, maybe instructive, also convicting, uh, is just in like what, 25 verse 35, and then kind of down a little ways, but just uh, when he says, I was hungry, you gave me something to eat, thirsty, you gave me something to drink, but just kind of that, you know, when we do that, whatever, for other people, we serve other people, and like he says, uh, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Mm -hmm. So just, I don't know, for me, that was a good reminder of looking out, thinking outward and thinking of others and, you know, helping others and supporting and serving more than just worrying about yourself, you know. Yeah. I, I think that this is a guiding text for the church's ethic and life. So you know how sometimes people will say a phrase like, that guy is so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good. Well, Jesus <laughs> brings the two things together here to talk about your life after death and doing good on the earth. He says they belong together, right? I, I mean, I think this text should transform the way we think about things, what it means to be a Christian in the world, because here Jesus is talking about individuals who, in verse 34, the king will say to those, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Well, if we're reading Matthew all in one day, we're going to say that sounds a lot like Jesus's description of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 about people who will inherit the kingdom and inherit the world. And actually, I think if you look at those Beatitudes again, it starts out with the meek will inherit the earth. And then the, whatever the last one is, it's about inheriting the earth or the kingdom again. And it's like Jesus is just re-articulating it right here. So I think what's important for us, which is what you're hinting at, Matthew, 
is that when we ask, what does it look like to serve King Jesus? What does it look like to be part of the kingdom now as we await the fullness of the kingdom? What's well, treating every person like they're Jesus, right? And relating to them in that way. Well, that's kind of hard because I think some of us grew up in places that said, we don't want to be legalists. So if someone asks you what it means to be a Christian, it just means that you're going to heaven when you die. Well, Jesus says the people who are going to heaven when you die, who inherit the kingdom, are the people who lived as kingdom citizens in this earth. What do you guys think about that? I like it. So I think, you know, there's a way to help people where it hurts them. There's a book called When Helping Hurts that talks about this. Um, but I think we've got all this Panera bread. Why why aren't we grabbing a little bit more than we need so we can give it to the homeless person we drive by on our way to work? I think I've heard of people in our church doing that. I mean, I think these sorts of things, you know, that connects somewhat literally to what Jesus is talking about here. But but I think that's how we have to live. We have to give of ourselves, treating other people like Jesus, because that's how we operate and live in the in the kingdom with kingdom values. Just being convicted over here. I forgot we we're on a podcast. It's all right. <clears throat> it's never a bad time to be convicted. I wish you could say that with more conviction, though. <laughs> no, that's right. After Jesus describes what it looks like for people to live in the kingdom now, and really, as he gives a vision of the future, there's a hard shift in chapter 26 where Jesus finishes saying these things, and he predicts his crucifixion. And um, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking through all of this, um, mostly because we're reading through this text on Sunday in our services. Uh, so this past Sunday, we read, um, I believe, through chapter 27, verse 26. So, so we're being familiarized as a church with this. Um, I, I guess whenever this episode drops, that would have happened a couple, a couple weeks ago. Uh, but we're familiar with these texts. We're reading them as a church. But I, I just want to point out a couple of things. The first is that the Lord um, connects the meal that he gives the disciples that we call the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist or communion. He connects that to the Passover. So it's like the Passover is being re-given for the church. So this is our meal of remembrance of our deliverance, right? Um, so I don't think that we should look at the Lord's Supper as optional. I think we need to participate it and think about it. You know, we, we call it a memorial sometimes, and that's good, but not if we think of a memorial like we do a memorial in Washington, D.C., that we walk by, we quickly observe, and move on from. It's a memorial like the Passover was a memorial, where, where you draw to mind and participate in and remember actively. Uh, so we talk about the Lord's Supper a lot at our church, so I won't, I won't say anything more unless you guys want to talk about the Lord's Supper more. Okay, the other thing that I want to comment on are actions connected to symbols that can happen in good faith or bad faith. Um, so we talk about the Lord's Supper as a symbol. So I guess I am talking more about the Lord's Supper. We talk about baptism as a symbol. And symbols help shape reality, right, when they happen in good faith. So if you give somebody a hug and, you know, and, and you actually love them when you hug them, it helps contribute towards warmth and affection, right? It, it helps cultivate that. Um, when you kiss somebody, right, it, it's an expression of love and affection, but only if you do it in good faith. Judas kisses Jesus in bad faith. So that's a symbol of greeting more than a handshake, but a symbol of greeting, but it's done in bad faith, which makes a betrayal seem all the more awful. And Jesus predicted his betrayal at a meal, which symbolizes and brings about communion and relationship. So the point is that I'm trying to make that Matthew is trying to get us to feel Jesus's betrayal in stark and emotional terms. And when we read this, I think we go into the rest of the story feeling like Jesus has been betrayed. He really has. And, and it makes the story a lot heavier. And it shows how Jesus is, carries through redemption truly as he relates to the disciples on the other side of the tomb. I've got a question about Judas. Uh, he ends up having remorse, chucks the silver back, and then goes and hangs himself. Mm -hmm. Is it... Um, I mean, is it basically concluded that Judas 
he ends badly. I mean, he felt remorse, but there's nothing about any kind of repentance. Is that kind of signified with just he felt remorse, but then just went and offed himself? Yeah, it's hard to say that he was truly repentant, especially if you're still hearing Jesus's words from from the Passover meal when he says that the one who betrays the Son of Man, it would be better for him if he had not been born. Right. You know, it seems like Jesus is not making a positive statement about this guy ever. And yeah, it seems like he's remorseful, but doesn't return to the Lord. I, I, it's hard to pronounce a judgment on somebody in terms of their eternal destiny, but it doesn't, it, it, I mean, it looks grim. AJ, do you think that Judas repented or was just remorseful and didn't um, take his guilt to, to the, to the risen Lord? I mean, clearly he, he was dead by that time. Yes. I, thanks for repeating the question and your, I didn't hear your response, but I was reading in my notes. So I think he was just remorseful. I don't think he repented. I don't know what Aaron said. But I, I actually made a long argument that he repented. <laughs> just kidding. I didn't at all, but you weren't paying attention, so you wouldn't have known. Nope. I, I couldn't think of any logical reasons to support that view. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know, Matthew. I mean, what do you think? Um, I don't know. Just, uh, just thinking about this situation, I mean, it's kind of... Maybe the worst thing you could do or one of the worst things you could do is literally betray the Son of God and then just thinking about um, there was then, you know, if how it goes, there was no redemption for him because of that mm-hmm. sin. I was just, it's just kind of, I was just thinking about what that might mean. Well, at least we don't see him being redeemed. Um, I mean, it seems like we know the end of his story. But, but maybe we don't. I think we probably have reason to suspect that, that Judas may have been a Judas all along. We use that term pejoratively now, but I think all the way back to chapter 26, when the, uh, when the woman anointed Jesus's feet with really expensive perfume and the disciples were somewhat troubled by it, immediately after that, there's the record of Judas Iscariot going to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? And they weighed out money. So it seems like he's the guy who was probably their treasure, so to speak. I've heard that speculated, but I, I don't know all the facts there. But it seems like he's been in it for the money. And so he figures out he can betray this J- Jesus for a certain amount of money. And it's only after the fact that he realizes I... I should not have done that at all, and is remorseful. Uh, but who's who's to say? It made me think of one of those movies where someone's possessed and they have to do a bunch of stuff because some demon possessed them, and then they, when the demon leaves them, they they remember you know all the stuff that they did, and they just are so traumatized. Yeah, but I I would say that whatever possession Jesus took place, I know I know we there's a language in the text there. I, I think it conforms to the previous inclinations that this guy had. I agree. I think it's both. It's it was it was he and yeah. I I think it's a lot like uh, what we were reading in Exodus a couple weeks ago, where Pharaoh, what where his heart was hardened by God, but he also hardened his heart. He was doing exactly what he wanted, and I think Judas was too. Now this is my question for you guys: Who is Judas Priest? And how did that become like a euphemism or or like exclamation? That's a band, I think. Okay. Yeah, I think it's just you put things together that shouldn't be together. Okay. Really. I listened to this guy um, on a podcast, this guy, Ted Cluck. And is it like shocked expression? Sometimes it'd be like, Judas Priest, man. <laughs> and, and I don't know what all that signifies, but I found myself saying that sometimes. Like, ah, I should look into that. And and I've been reminded that as I read about Judas here. Yeah, they're a British rock band. Okay, from the sixties. And aren't Jude uh, and Judas the same name? Hold on, let me pull up uh, the the book of Jude. Actually, um, I think Jude and Judas are the same name. That sounds right. Yeah, Judas, Judas, right? Maybe maybe that's not important, but that also then leads us to Hey Jude. 
which is, you know, speaking of bands. Beatles. Yes, sir. Are you a Beatles fan? You know, in high school, maybe you guys don't need to know this, but in high school, I bought their remastered one album, the red one with the yellow one on it. And I would do homework at McDonald's and listen to that on my Mac book. Uh, what was it called? I don't know. It was super thick Mac. Anyway. So oh, I, w- I would. Big Mac. <laughs> yeah. Any- <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, yeah. So big Beatles fan. I, I mean, I'm going to leave in 10 minutes. Oh, so. I'm done. We're not going to talk about the resurrection at Resurrection Church podcast. Wait, we're not to that part. Come on. That's the best part. It's okay. the hope Wait. in this terrible scene. Well, now that we've discussed some of those less observed ideas about the Lord's Supper and signs and symbols and these sorts of things, and um, I just want us to conclude our look at Matthew by looking at chapter 28, where there's the description of the resurrection. Of course, uh, the two Marys were there. Uh, as they go to see the, the tomb of the Lord, and they encounter the angel who said, He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. And then they went on to tell the disciples, they ran into Jesus on the way, and they worshiped him. And this is such a great text for us to consider on the Resurrection Church podcast, where our church name is connected to this event, the really the central event in the New Testament where Christ conquers death, he proves who he says he is. He raises from the dead and offers life to us forevermore. So comforting to know that we serve a God who has authority over death. And, you know, the Great Commission at the end really kind of gives us a direction to go with that news. We should be telling others and living in a way that shows others what we believe. Absolutely. And and there's great hope for our, for our every day of life, right? Jesus conquered death. He He shares his resurrection power with us. One day we'll be raised from the dead, so we live knowing that what we do in this life matters. More than that, we understand that death, we, we often connect Satan and death together, right? Well, Christ conquered all. And so as we face the challenges in this life, temptations, all of these other things, we look to Christ who, who's the ultimate victor. Okay, we made it through Exodus and Matthew. Thank you guys both for being here. Yeah, thank you. And thank you to our listeners and our sponsors. Who are one and the same. Yeah, that's right. We'll see you next time on the Resurrection Church Podcast. This podcast is a ministry of Resurrection Church in Burnsville, Minnesota. You can learn more about our church at www.resurrectionmn.org.